At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. With the um, invention of GPS and kind of the ease of accessibility that we have to it, one of the phenomenons that I have noticed that takes place in my life and I imagine takes place in some of yours is that I will normally hop in the car, plug in whatever destination I'm going to if I don't know, and set off without ever even really thinking another thought about it, right? The little voice on my phone just speaks to me or I look at the route and I just go and I'm like, I'm sure this is the right route and I'm sure I'm headed in the right direction. I don't know if any of you have this experience, but it's pretty regular. Like, okay, yeah, we just almost turn our minds off and kind of cruise to where, wherever we're gonna go. The problem with that is sometimes we're not actually headed to the right route and sometimes we're not even taking the right way to get to where we're actually headed. And oftentimes when that happens, we can get really disoriented and confused. And what I found is this is actually pretty common too. If you, if you want a good Google search, go home this afternoon and just search mistaken GPS locations and you will find a plethora of people who both ended up in the wrong place or ended up on the wrong route to get to the place that they were going. For instance, one of the things I did this week because I found this and found it amusing was um, when Apple Maps first released uh, kind of their uh, app, um, they had a whole bunch of issues with their directions. One of the issues they had with directions was if you were gonna try to go to the airport in Fairbanks, Alaska, Apple Maps would actually give you directions onto the taxiway. So you would drive there, and they actually had an incidences where cars were driving onto the taxiway of the airport because that's there they thought the destination was supposed to be. So eventually, the authorities had to set up barricades and Apple Maps had to do the fix. Sometimes you think you're headed to the right destination, but you're not. Sometimes you get the wrong route, just like last year in Pennsylvania, a truck carrying toxic chemicals to its destination was rerouted by its GPS onto a pedestrian bridge, not being able to bear the weight of the truck that crashed into the marsh below. And you laugh at that, but you and I know that could easily happen. You know how many times you've been in your car, driving along, thinking you're headed in the right direction, thinking you're on the right route, and suddenly you realize you're not. And the problem is you've actually turned your brain off in such a way that that moment becomes really disorienting because you're like, wait, hold on, I'm not even sure where I'm at. I'm not even sure where I'm going and now I'm not even sure how to get there. And I don't know about you, those can be really frustrating and kind of disorienting moments in our lives. I think oftentimes when it comes to the way many of us live our lives, we kind of take the cruise control GPS approach. I think many people in our world kind of assume our destination or our route for life from maybe the family we get or the culture we're surrounded by, maybe what influences us at certain points and times. And we kind of set out on the path of our life with our brains turned off, just kind of not exactly sure where we're headed and not exactly sure how we're going to get there. But as long as things are comfortable, as long as things seem to be working out okay, we're great with that. But then oftentimes we hit moments in our life where things go out of whack. Maybe we get a report back from the doctor that we weren't expecting. Maybe a relationship goes south that we thought was headed in a different direction. 
Maybe we didn't get the job. Maybe something happens. We lose someone that we love. And suddenly, we find ourselves in a place where, where we thought we're headed, we're not so sure about anymore. And the route we thought we were taking to get there suddenly becomes really confusing and disorienting. And oftentimes, when we find ourselves in those places, we usually kind of have two options. We either plow ahead, well, I'll just keep going, hope it all works out, we'll see. Or we can also step back and evaluate where we're headed and how we're actually going to get there. This morning, we're continuing in our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, where we're looking at Jesus' last teaching before his death and resurrection. And Jesus is with his followers, helping them to understand what life is going to look like on the other side of that. But as he's teaching them, these disciples hit a moment of kind of disorientation and bewilderment. Everything of where they thought it meant to follow Jesus was heading, suddenly in this moment is starting to be brought into question and they're confused. They thought following Jesus meant political victory and that they were going to assume power and overthrow the Romans and suddenly the Messiah would come to purify God's people and reestablish his presence in the way they thought. And yet Jesus has been talking about this whole thing about how they're actually going to have to serve one another and lay their lives down for one another and that he's actually going to be going to a place that they can't even come. And as you read through the passage, you can almost feel the bewilderment start to come on the disciples. And Jesus steps kind of into the moment of their, des- their disorientation and says, hey, let's take a moment and really consider. Do you know where you're headed? Do you know what route you're on? Do you understand the purpose that I have for you and why things are headed the way they are? Jesus often in our moments of disorientation steps in to give us the opportunity to see where we can be headed and what our life and purpose is ultimately about. So with that, let's look at the text together. Look at verse 14. Remember, right before this, the apostle Peter, Jesus had given them this new commandment to love each other. And the apostle Peter said, hey, I'm going to do that. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Actually, you're going to deny me. And you can imagine Peter felt really bewildered at that moment. And they're all kind of questioning, what is actually going on? And Jesus gives them words of comfort. In verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the midst of their disorientation, Jesus steps into his disciples. He knows that his ensuing departure is bothering them. And so he begins to encourage them, really through three imperatives or three commands. The first one, he kind of says, hey, don't be anxious. Right? That phrase, let your hearts be troubled. At the end of the day, it means to have your inward being agitated or discouraged. We would use the term anxiety often to describe that. And Jesus is saying, I know this seems daunting. Don't be anxious about it. And then he gives them two kind of qualifying commands on how they cannot be anxious. Believe in God and in me. The verbs that Jesus gives in those commands are really present tense verbs. They're meant to be ongoing actions that he's giving to his disciples. He says, on the way, there's going to be these moments where things are disorienting. The way is don't let your heart go towards anxiety, but the way you move away from that is actually by trusting in an ongoing way who God is and as he is revealed in me. In many ways, this becomes the heart of the passage that Jesus is going to kind of unpack for his disciples. This call to belief. That you and I are to believe in Jesus. 
Why? Why does Jesus set them at the beginning towards this belief in God, ultimately in belief in him? Because Jesus knows that our trusting of him, our centering our lives and trusting him actually is what orients us towards the right destination, helps us understand the right route, and helps us understand our purpose. And that essentially sets up the structure of how Jesus will unpack this call to faith that he gives his disciples. The first thing that he wants to encourage them to consider is that by believing in him, it helps them understand the destination that he's leading them towards. Look what he says in verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus encourages them to believe because he wants to remind them, believing in Je- believe that Jesus will ultimately bring us to the Father, that that's the destination, that the reason Jesus is going, although that feels disorienting to them, he's going to prepare a place to bring them into his Father's house, that that's ultimately the destination that he is taking them to. Now, what does that mean, though? What is in the Father's house, where Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms? I think often this phrase has gotten misunderstood. It's been often interpreted extremely literally. That the image that we have in our minds is like, Jesus is going somewhere to prepare my dream house for me. My like HGTV dream house with the big pool and the deck and all the rooms and all the fancy fireplace and all the things that I ever dreamed in a home. That that's, that's where I'm headed. God, he's going to prepare a place for me. What doesn't help us is that in the King James Version, which is kind of the Orient and one of the main versions in English, they actually change that word as mansions. And people have this idea, oh yeah, one day I'm going to go get my mansion with Jesus. Like that's the image that we have. But that's not actually what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. That's not actually the destiny that he's laying out for them. So what does he mean by my father's house? Well, Jesus has actually used that phrase already in the Gospel of John, and it helps us understand what he means when he says it. He uses it in John chapter 2 when he shows up at the temple in Jerusalem and he finds in the outer courts a bunch of people exploiting those that would come and worship at the temple by trying to oversell them things that they could sacrifice. And this is what Jesus says to those who are selling in John 2 verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus has already used the phrase my father's house and he's used it to describe the temple. Now, what is the temple? Well, the temple is the symbol or the place in which God dwelt among his people. It was at the center of Jewish worship, and it was the place in which they believed that God dwelled among all of these people and that they dwelt with God. Jesus essentially uses the phrase, my father's house, to describe the temple. But even in that same passage, he actually transforms their understanding of what the temple is truly about. If you keep reading in John chapter 2, the Jews respond to Jesus and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days. I mean, this temple was magnificent. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was huge and vast. It took years to build. You're going to, but look what Jesus says. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
So Jesus had already transformed their understanding to say, my father's house, the place where God dwells amongst his people has shifted from the location and space of a building to now being present in me, that I'm the one in which and in my body, God dwells among his people and his people dwell with God. When Jesus uses the phrase, in my father's house are many rooms, that idea of rooms is simply the word in the original language. It just means dwelling place. It's somewhere you dwell or remain or you live. So when you see the phrase in context, this isn't Jesus orienting them saying, oh, the place you're going is that mansion that God has for you in the sky. What we begin to see is that our true destination that Jesus is preparing for us is a permanent dwelling with God in him. Meaning that as we come to know him, God now dwells with us and we dwell with God. And this is his understanding of their destination. The destination isn't about a place. It's about the person that we'll be with for eternity. When you think about the phrase eternal life, what comes to your mind? That, that's a good churchy phrase. Right? Many people think of the phrase eternal life. And even people in our culture have probably at some point seen John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who should ever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But what comes to your mind when you think, what is eternal life? What, what is that? Most people don't even think about that. 55% of Americans say they never think about eternal life. They never think about a destiny or a location. But when you think about it, do you think about a place? Do you, do you think about a location is eternal life just going to heaven when you die? Is eternal life paradise, some sort of disembodied eternity with clouds and harps and angels? Or, or is, is it the place where you actually get what you've always wanted in life most? That that's what eternal life is going to be? What do you think Jesus meant when he talked about eternal life? How did he define it? Have you ever asked that question? The good thing is Jesus actually gives us what he means by eternal life. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus understood eternal life as knowing God. Not knowing about God. That's not a cognitive word. That's a word of intimacy, of union, of connection and relationship. Jesus saw eternal life as union with God, where you live dwelling in him and him in you. Eternal life is about a relationship that transforms the space. It's not about the space that you're trying to get to. Maybe think of it this way. So um, this summer, my brother just returned from a three-year deployment in Okinawa, Japan. He serves in the Marine Corps, and he'd been over there for three years, and we didn't have much contact with him. But he was, uh, got transferred back to Quantico, Virginia for the next year. And so in the late spring, we were trying to figure out when we were going to see them. It had been quite a while, and we were trying to make plans together as a family and trying to figure out how it was all going to work. We were, first, we looked at maybe trying to meet him up in Tampa, where my parents are, and seeing if my brother and I could all get there to see them there. But there were some challenges in trying to navigate that. So then we started to look at other places. And we started to look at maybe trying to go to Nashville, which was more central. And we're like all on Airbnb looking at all these places. Will this house work? Will this space look work? Will this location work? And like at some point, I was like literally just fell to myself. Like, I don't care where we go. I just want to be with my brother. 
right? Like I didn't care if it was a small house we were cramped. I didn't care if it was the biggest house ever. I didn't care if it cost no money or what happened. All that mattered to me at some point was like, I just want to be with my brother and his family. It's been three years because I knew, I knew even if the place wasn't the best, that being them with them would transform the place, that the joy would overflow from the relationship. That's how Jesus pictures eternal life. He says eternal life is where you get to be with God, fully present, him dwelling in you, you dwelling in him forever. That's eternal life. And when you're in that place, the space around you is transformed. Eternal life isn't a location. It's not a mansion you get one day. It's that you get to have a relationship with God forever that can start now and then be brought fully into its reality in his eternal kingdom. And so Jesus wants to help you to see part of the reason I've got to leave is because I'm bringing you towards your destination, which is an eternal relationship with God. It's being in his house, in his presence, with him, in me forever. And that's only going to happen through my death, resurrection, and ascension. The joy for Jesus is that we get to be with God and that God is life. And he's where the source of life flows. So maybe you feel a little disoriented like the disciples. Maybe sometimes life feels confusing. Jesus steps in and says, take heart. Don't be anxious. Believe that I will bring you into relationship with the Father. And that will be the place from which you live and experience life, the fullness of life, the eternal life that God has for you. He even says that if you're in him, you actually already know the way there. So the destination is a permanent dwelling with God. But not only that, how do we get that? Well, Jesus says, you know the way, right? I mean, that's essentially what Thomas pops in and says. Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I love the disciples. They give me so much encouragement, right? Because you're like, come on, Thomas. And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus says, don't only believe that I will bring you to the father. I will bring you to your eternal life, your destination. But recognize I'm the way. That believing in me is also believing that I am the way to the father. I'm the route. I'm the way in which you get to get God for all of eternity. God. Jesus clarifies for Thomas that we and they actually do know the way because they know him. And this little statement that he gives, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is profound in the gospel of John. In fact, if you would read through John's gospel, there are seven very particular I am statements that Jesus gives. I am the bread of life. I, am, there's, I won't go through them all right now, right? But when you read through them in context, what you see is that throughout the gospel, John is locating these sayings of Jesus to help you see the fuller picture of who he is and what he has come to do, to reveal more of the reality of Christ. And this phrase is given particularly for you to see that Jesus is the one who brings salvation to bear so that people can be brought back into relationship to God. And these phrases that Jesus uses, way, truth, life, they're stated together to form a picture of the sort of salvation that he ultimately brings for those that will believe in him to show you what the way is. 
He's the way, meaning he's the means by which we come to God. He's the truth. He's the one through whom we, which we know the reality of God and reveals God to us. And he is the one in which we live in God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If eternal life is to know God in union with him, then Jesus is how that happens. He's the one that reveals the reality of how that happens. And he's the totality of what it looks like. He is the fullness of salvation brought to bear on our lives. Here's how one commentator puts it that I really like, Edward Clink in his commentary on John. He says, Jesus destroys the wall that divides humanity from God. He's the way. He denies the falsehood that distorts humanity in relation to God as the truth and defeats the last and greatest enemy of humanity, death, which is separation from God as the life. He is the totality of what God has done, is doing, and will do. So Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you know the way because I am the way. I am the totality of what it means to be brought into relationship with God and experience eternal life. And not only is he the way, he's the only way. It's why he qualifies it with, no one comes to the Father except through me. As the one who is the totality of salvation, Jesus also makes clear that he is the exclusive means of salvation, that there is not another way to God. And that phrase is startling, but it's meant to. And there's a couple things I think we need to note here, even as we hear Jesus's words, no one comes to the Father but by me. First, is we need to recognize Jesus in this statement is not pointing out the way or showing the way. He's not saying that's the way. That's where you need to go. That's what you need to do. Or he's not saying, hey, I'm going to show you the way to get to God. What he's saying is, I am the way. It's me. I'm the path. The only way you get to God is by relationship with me. There's not some other path that you've got to figure out in order to experience knowing God and the eternal life that he has for you. He is the totality of salvation and coming to know him is to know God. Second, because he's the way, there is not another way. What Jesus makes clear here is he is not one way among many ways, but he is the only way to God. That's a startling statement in our culture. Most people, not only in the world, but in the church, do not follow Jesus' statement here. In fact, recent data from the Pew Research Center shows that the majority, the majority of both Christians and non-Christians think that there are many ways to heaven and eternal life. The mantra of our world is all paths lead up the same mountain. doesn't matter what path you take, what path you take, what you take, they all lead to the same place. Yet, what Jesus makes clear here is that he stands in direct opposition to that idea. Why? Why does he do that? Because he knows that if eternal life is knowing God, that he's the only one that can bring us to that place because he is God. So the only way we can know God is by knowing him because he's the only one that's come to reveal God to us. And that's essentially where the conversation goes that Jesus is having with his disciples. Because look what Philip pipes up and says. Right? He says, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And Philip gets confused. Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. He's like, oh, great. Well, then just show us God, right? I mean, like, if, if you're the way, show us God. 
And this is what I love. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Don't miss that. Don't miss that. You can be with Jesus and not know Jesus. You can be with him and not know him. And Jesus is like, come on, bro. How long have you been with me? You still haven't made, connected the dots yet? How can you say, show us the Father? Or sorry, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Right? Jesus is trying to say, I'm the way. So believe in me and believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. So if you've seen me, then you have seen the Father. The reason I am the way is because in engaging me, knowing me, being in relationship with me, is to be in relationship with God himself. That's why he is the way. See, Jesus' response is startling here. Because if you read through the Old Testament, what you would see time and time again is those that would come or desire to see God, it's replete with reminders that, no, you can't see God. Moses sought to see God. God's like, no, I'll show you my back after I pass by. Because if you see me, man, that'd be the end of you. So you almost expect when Philip shows up and says, show us the Father, for Jesus to say, no, 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 nobody gets to do that. But that's not what he says. He says, no, you've already seen him. Because you've seen me. And what Jesus points us towards here is a deep truth about who he is and why he's the exclusive means of salvation for us to come to know the Father. Because he is God, and as God, the Father is in him. Now, we've got to go deep here for a second for me to help you understand what Jesus is revealing, okay? So what Jesus is teaching us here we refer to as the doctrine of mutual indwelling. Whew. Let me help you understand it because it's important. And it's important for you to understand why Jesus is so important in the salvation that he brings. What we see scripture reveal is that God in his nature is triune. We say God is trinity, which means that God is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you read through scripture, what you see is the Father is referred to as God. He is God. The Son, Jesus, is referred to as God. He is God. And the Spirit is referred to as God. He is God. But there are not three gods. There's only one God. Now, how that all works? Whew. John Wesley once said, bring me a worm that can understand a human being, and I'll show you a human being who can understand the triune God. Right? Like, it's a mystery. But, but scripture reveals it. And the churches confessed that for 2,000 years. We just sang, I believe in God Almighty. I believe in the Son and the Spirit. One of the references and realities out of the Trinity is the idea that all that God is exists in every person of the Trinity, but the persons of the Trinity are still distinct from themselves. So the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But the Father is God and the Son is God. Therefore, to encounter the Son is also to encounter the Father because the Father mutually indwells the Son. So what Jesus is saying is, if you've encountered me because I'm in the Father and the Father is me, although I'm not the Father, I am the Son, you've actually encountered the Father. And this is why I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, is your head hurt yet? 
good, because we're talking about God here. So if you could wrap your mind around it, you'd be God and not him. But let me try to give you an illustration that I think scripture points us towards. It kind of gets at it, but can't fully describe it. So the language the Bible uses of the persons of the Trinity, the two of them is father and son. So I'm a son and I have a father. And unfortunately, many of you had not had the opportunity to meet my dad. But if you did have the opportunity to meet my dad, you would walk away saying, Jacob makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> right? You'd be like, oh, I get it. I get it. Get why he is the way he is. Right? I mean, it's like a regular occurrence in my house where my wife will look at me and say, man, you're so much like your dad. And I like always take that as a compliment because I love my dad. Like, you're right. Thanks, babe. Now, the reason you can know my dad, even though you've never met my dad, is because you know me. And in a sense, he dwells in me. I mean, literally, I have part of his DNA in my cells. So part of who he is is in who I am. But not only that, I also have his mannerisms. I have some of his characters. I have some of his features. I talk some of the way he is. We're both real intense dudes, so you can only imagine the sort of conversations that we have when we talk. So when you engage me, you also know my dad. Now, the, the analogy breaks down here at this point because we don't perfectly indwell each other because I also have my mom mixed in there as well. Praise the Lord. So, right, so I'm a balance of them. But it gives you a little bit of the glimpse that Jesus is saying because remember, we're created in God's image. He's not created in our image. So although you can see what it's in part and true in me, in God it is perfectly perfected, which means the Father in all that he is dwells perfectly in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father such that when you engage the Son, you come to know the Father. Do you get that? Does it make a little sense? Just give me some, you're awake, you're with me, and you're like, okay, right? Because I know it's deep, but it's important. Do you know why it's important? Because that's how we're saved. You see, the reason Jesus is exclusive is because he knows no one else can bring you to the Father because the Father doesn't mutually indwell them. He's the only one. There is no spiritual teacher. There is no one else on earth. There is no one who can come to bring you to a place of knowing the Father except for Jesus because the Father is in him and he is in the Father. And that's what makes him the unique way to God. When he says no one comes to the Father except by me, we take that as exclusive. But that's not exclusive, that's an invitation. He doesn't want to lead you down the wrong path. He doesn't want you to take a route where you get to the end and go, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. That's not the path I thought that was on. And he wants to say, no, 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 no. The reason no one gets to get to the Father is because the Father's in me. And he makes himself available to all of us so you can know the Father. And so he reveals and is the way to God. He doesn't point the way. He doesn't teach the way. He is the way because he is God incarnate. And he's the one who can save us. And not only that, he's not only the destination and the route, he also comes to help us understand our purpose as we follow him. That's where he goes to in the text. So look again with me. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. So what he's saying is, hey, believe this truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
And don't just believe in me, but believe on account of the works that God is doing in and through me. They give testimony to who I am, what I have come to do, my work of salvation. Now watch the transition now he makes in reference to the work in verse 12, because this is where he wants to take the disciples and this is where he wants to take you and me. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So what Jesus wants to say is, hey, first of all, believe in me because I'll show you your destination to know God. Believe in me because I am the way, the truth, and life. I am God who's come to reveal you. And don't just believe account on me. Believe on account of the works that God is doing in the world. But also recognize that as you walk that route, you have a purpose in that route. That in a little while's time, I'm going to go, but the reason I'm going to go is so that I can now begin to work through you so that you can now be a testimony to the truth that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That you're going to now continue my works in the world. This is part of the reason that I'm leaving. So the purpose he wants them to give. So he's like, be, be, take comfort, right? Don't be anxious. Believe in me. I'm leaving for a good reason. To get you to the Father. To show I'm the way and to give you your purpose and mission while I'm gone. To continue my work in the world. In this moment, Jesus moves his disciples from being witnesses to his work to being participants in his work. Now that's incredible. And what actually does that involve? What are the works that he is talking about here? Because he says, hey, those who believe in me, whoever, not just you guys, whoever believes in me, they're going to do greater works than these. You're like, what? How are you going to do greater works than Jesus? And if you look up the word greater in the Greek, you know what it means? It means greater. <laughs> so it's like, like, what on earth can you mean, Jesus? I mean, if you just take what Jesus has already done in the gospel of John, you have to at some point ask the question, what are you doing? I mean, in John chapter 2, he literally turns water into wine at a wedding. In John chapter 4, he shows up at a well and somehow knows intimate details about a woman that he's met for the very first time, though she's not told him anything. In John chapter 5, he heals a lame man. In John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people and walks on water. In John chapter 9, he heals the blind. And in John 11, he raises a man from the dead. Now, I don't know, but if he then says you're going to do greater works, at some point you got to go, what's greater than raising someone from the dead? Like, is that what I'm supposed to be about? Like, all right, seems like a tall task. Oftentimes, I think how we understand what Jesus is saying here, historically in the church, we've made kind of two errors with it. Because it's really hard to wrestle with for a second. One error is we minimize it. We, we can't fathom it, so we, we minimize it. And we say, well, what Jesus simply means here is, there's just going to be more works because there's more disciples. So it's, so it's a greater in quantity. There's only one of him. There's going to be more disciples. So that'll be the greater works, right? It's, it's greater by quantity. The second error, I think, is we maximize it. We say it's actually going to be greater in quality. So we're going to do things in a greater way than Jesus did them. And I always struck kind of like, like there is no greater work than resurrection. So, so which is it? Well, it's actually a balance, what Jesus is trying to point them to, and I don't have time to go all into the depth of this, but what I want you to help understand, when he talks about greater, he's not talking about quantity or quality. He's talking about the era of salvation history. What he's trying to say is you're going to do greater works because on the other side of my death and resurrection, the works that you are going to do are going to more fully reveal the reality of the salvation that I'm bringing. 
And so, yes, there will be miracles. And yes, there will be mundane things that you do. But I'm going to work through all of that to reveal in more ways my salvation and my kingdom. Here's what one scholar says on this right here. He says, the signs and works Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and been exalted. Only at that point could they be seen for what they were. By contrast, the works believers are given to do through the power of the eschatological spirit. That just means end of time, right? After Jesus' glorification will be set in the framework of Jesus' death and triumph and will therefore more immediately and truly reveal the Son. See, what Jesus is trying to say is, you're going to go out. You're going to be my people. You're going to continue these works in big ways and small ways and all sorts of ways and everyday things of life. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through those to reveal who I am. You're going to continue the mission. You're going to have a purpose. You are going to carry on, church, the ministry of God in the world. Do you think of your life that way? Do you think when you go to work this week, you are carrying forth the purposes and work of God in the world right here, right now? By how you live, how you work, how you relate, what you do, how you speak. Jesus is trying to say, listen, believe in me because I got massive things for you to do. Because you're going to be my witnesses. And not only that, I'm going to be with you. Right? Whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do. That's not like go pray for a Ferrari. That's like ask in accordance with the mission. Ask in accordance with my purposes. And guess what? I'm going to work through you. I'm going to answer those prayers. I'm going to do things you never thought that I could do so that I can show you the reality of who I am in the world. That's what Jesus wants them to see. Man, you've got a huge purpose. You're going to continue on my work. And if at this point you're thinking like, how on earth do I do that? Well, that's what the whole next section is about that we're going to look at next week. So feel a little bit of that tension. Feel a little bit of that, oh, how am I going to do this? Well, Jesus is going to give you the answer. You can read ahead. It's there. Don't worry, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, what he wants to remind them is, man, believe in me. Believe in me. That's how you come back to understanding your true destination. That's how you find the right route. And that's how you understand the purpose God has for your life in the world. If you've ever been in that place in where you're following your GPS and you recognize you're on the wrong route, right? Usually you have this like creeping sensation in your heart that says like, this doesn't feel right. I don't, I don't think I'm in the right place. And you and I both know when, when that voice comes, usually we ignore that to our peril. Like if we just push through and we're like, all right, I'm going to keep going. That's usually where we end up where we don't want to be. Some of you are feeling that this morning, right? Some of you have that down deep in your gut where you're saying something's not right here. Something's off. Something's not clicking. Part of the reason you might have that is because you're headed in the wrong destination. You've been on cruise control through life and you've never given a thought, what am I actually going for? What do I anticipate is on the other side of my life? Do you know where you're headed? Some of you, it's because you're on the wrong route. Maybe you started on the way of Jesus, but you got off at some point. And you got on a different way, your way. And you know it's not quite working the way you thought it was. And some of you, you just have the wrong app altogether. It's not giving you the right information. It's not providing what you have. And you down deep in your gut have this nagging feeling that says, man, something's off. Now you got two options. 
you can just keep going and just keep pressing forward. We'll see. We'll hope it works out. Or you can follow what Jesus says here. And you can consider your destination. You can consider your route you're on. You can see the bigger purpose and you can believe in him. And that's where that disorientation moves to orientation. That's where the fuzziness of your destination suddenly becomes clear to where you're headed. That's where the challenge of the route you're on, suddenly you realize, oh, God actually does have some purposes in this to bring me to where he wants to bring me. And that's where you discover that your life has way more meaning than you ever even thought possible. But the starting point of walking that way is what Jesus says at the very beginning. It's believing in him. And that's the invitation today. To set your heart, to set your mind, to center your life and trust and follow him. If you've never done that, we invite you to put your faith in Jesus today. You can have eternal life. Not a mansion in the sky. A life with God that goes on forever, that brings you everything your heart longs for you can know the way because he's revealed it to us in himself. I pray you trust in Jesus today. Let me pray for you. Father, even now as we prepare to respond to this word, I pray that you would do a work in each one of our hearts and lives to bring us back and bring us to that greater place of trust and faith in Jesus. Lord, I know there's many of us in this room who just have that feeling down deep. Something feels not right. And if they're headed in the wrong destination, would you draw them back to seeing what you offer in Christ? Lord, if they've wandered from the way, would you, would you work to turn them around and bring them back to you? Maybe there's some who are questioning their purpose today, God. Would you, would you work? Maybe there's things happening in hearts that I can't even see or know, but you can, and you can work to bring us back to that deep place of just trust in Christ. Even as we prepare to just sing this song of response, declaring he's enough for us, that we're following him, that you would use it as a way for us collectively as your people to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. He's what I'm after. So we invite you to do your work now. Spirit, move, we ask. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.